Apparently so. Okay, I, th I think you should record it because there's a chance my computer will run out again like last time and I'll have to run to my phone. Okay, and like I said, there's a chance that my internet sometimes goes out, but if it does, I'll fail over to my hotspot. Okay, we'll, okay. we'll both record just in case. Okay. Is that possible? Well, you can see. Yeah, it's just put you up on computers. Okay. Okay, and the story begins. We're continuing chapter 33 on the, the, the middle of page 373. I think this is one of my favorite chapters today. <laughs> for today, for now, until it, until it changes. I, I think, you know, Tanya has so many different approaches. And it's important that we, we have that chapter that kind of clicks with us, that speaks to us. Chapter 33 is all about Simcha. Is all about joy. If we rewind, re uh, tongue twister. If we <laughs> can't get it. If we rewind, there we go. To chapter twenty-six. In chapter twenty-six, we said that if we want to succeed in winning our evil inclination, our negative impulse, it's not enough that we're strong. We do. We all have hidden strengths. But that's not sufficient. We have to be motivated. And one of the sources of motivation is simcha, is joy. From where does this joy come? So we said last week, understanding the reality of our existence, challenging existence as we know it, and understanding that the reality of everything we know is really God. God created everything, which means everything is a product of Him, which means everything's essentially Him, which means we are super close to Him <laughs> because He's not just in heaven. He created this world. It's part of Him. Just like the rays of the sun within the sun, from the sun's perspective, the rays are not an independent existence. The rays are just an extension of the sun. And same thing with God. Everything's, although from our perspective, the rays seem very powerful and independent. For, um, the world seems powerful and independent from God's perspective. It's all an extension of him, which means we're very close to him. The more we not only understand this conceptually, but the more we internalize this idea emotionally, the more close we feel to God. We said on, uh, we concluded this yesterday, uh, last week's discussion on uh, 372. We said this is the entire purpose of man. The entire purpose of our existence is to be in a world that seems totally void of God and to come to the realization that not only is there a God that exists, not only is there a creator, but that this creator is ever so present. Despite how, uh, how far away he, does, he may seem, he's more present than we can ever imagine. He's more close to us than we could ever imagine. And this is like the joy of, of you know, imagine a king 
a dignitary, a celebrity, calls you up and says, they don't invite you to their palace. They say, I want to be part of your home. I want to stay in your home. And you're just simple about, we would be honored. God wants to be part of our home, our emotional home, our personal home, our minds, our hearts, our hands through a performance of mitzvahs, our hearts through prayer, our minds through Torah study, and in general, our homes and in the world at large, God wants to join us. And we're, we're honored. We're really honored for this opportunity. This is, this is simcha. This is joy. In other words, the philosophy, the Hasidic philosophy of understanding the reality of God, how do I know if I really understand it? How do I know if I really understand the message of Judaism, the message of monotheism, the message of Tanya, what Abraham, our forefather, sacrificed his life for, right? He sacrificed his life not for the belief in one God, but for the belief that this one God is ever so close and relevant. How do I know if I've really internalized this? If my reaction, my emotional reaction is joy, simcha. That's the indication. I'll tell you a story. There were two Hasidim. Two Hasidim of yesteryear. Probably about 70 years ago. Maybe more. One was Rabbi Yosef. One was Rabbi Avraham. Very two different personalities. They were good buddies. Rabbi Yosef was an intellectual, and his understanding of Jewish philosophy was very pristine. His understanding of Hasidic philosophy, his ability to comprehend the ideas that we're learning in Tanya on a very deep level and his vast amount of knowledge was just mind-blowing. But he also had a very somber personality. It was just the way he was wired. Right? Everybody's wired differently. And then his counterpart, his friend, his buddy, Rebbe Avram. Rebbe Avram was more of a simpleton. Wasn't a deep philosopher. Wasn't a deep thinker. Didn't have the vast knowledge that Rebbe Yosef had. And he was not somber, but to the contrary. was was a pretty joyous person. And... They're in shul, they're davening, they're praying, and Rabbi Yosef is praying with heartfelt tears, and Rabbi Avram is singing with joy <laughs> and simcha. And Rabbi Yosef goes up to Rabbi Avram at the end of prayers, at the end of the davening, and says, Rabbi Avram, why are you so happy? Why are you so joyous? What's going on? <laughs> so he says, Rabbi Yosef, you're such a deep philosopher. You're such a deep thinker. But what is this knowledge leading to, if not joy? If your understanding of Judaism, the clarity that you're, you have, doesn't lead to joy, what's the point? We're missing the point. The whole point in, in Tanya, the whole point in Jewish philosophy in general, the whole point in Torah, the whole Judaism, is simcha, is joy. The rest is commentary. Now, many of you, many of us are familiar with, with the, the, the 
that love your fellow is the whole Torah, and the rest of comment is commentary. And, and those are are the same thing. Those are one and the same. Because if we have real joy experiencing our souls, then we experience somebody else's soul. We have that mitzvah of love your fellow. We have it. It's all there. This is exactly what Rabbi Avram was telling what Rabbi Yosef. You, you're so, you, you have all the ideas. You have the intellectual clarity. But if it's not leading to joy, we've missed the point. He says, I don't have the intellectual clarity. I don't have the vast knowledge. But I have the joy. At least I have the point. I, haven't got, I, didn't, get lo- I didn't get lost in the philosophy. So okay. can, can joy be just internal? Or does it have to be expressed externally? Could you have joy just saying... I understand the universe. I understand God is close. I'm not worried about dying. I, don't, I everything is good. My, but or do we need to dance? Do we need to sing? Do we need to party with our friends? That, that's a good question. That's a very good question. I think if it's internal, look, it should be internal. Um, I think when it's expressed. It um, it makes it more concrete, makes it more real to us, and also becomes contagious. It, you know, it becomes contagious, which is which is a, a beautiful thing. It's a very beautiful thing when it becomes contagious. There, there's a somebody once asked the Baal Shem Tov. This is one of my favorite stories. Somebody uh, I, I read it recently. Some, uh, a few months ago, somebody asked the Baal Shem Tov, why are Hasidim so joyous? Why are they always dancing? Tell them to relax. <laughs> so the Baal Shem Tov said, I'll give you an analogy. You have a person who is hearing impaired or, or perhaps even deaf. And they go to the street corner and there's a man with a violin and his bow playing. And there's a bunch of people dancing. He doesn't hear the music. Right? He just sees somebody making motions on a with some strings. And he sees everybody's reaction to it. He's going to wonder, why is everybody making these weird movements? Why is everybody dancing? He doesn't understand that it's an emotional reaction to the music. Because he doesn't hear the music. Says that you're asking why Hasidim are always dancing. You're asking why you're always so, they're always so joyous. It's because you don't hear the music. You don't hear the. There, there's a certain depth that they're reacting to, a certain depth of life that they appreciate. So the reaction is joy. We have to. We open our ears. We have to open our eyes to to, to see this greater depth. Um, that doesn't answer your question, but it just reminded me of that story. Um, and you answer to your question, does it have to be expressed? I, I think it's just different levels. At, at, at some point, if you're so joyous, it's going to be expressed in some way or another. Um, if it's not expressed, that doesn't mean you don't have the joy necessarily. Okay, let's take a look. Any, any questions, thoughts, comments? We're good. Okay, controversy? Okay, we're good. Okay, middle of 373. Um, right where it says 12, 12th of Adar regular, right over there. And that's why 
it was established that every morning we offer praise and thanksgiving to God's name. During the, the morning prayers, one of the preliminary prayers, and I don't have the page in the sitter, but John, you're going to tell me. Uh, when we say, <laughs> challenge, or David will tell me, whoever, whoever gets it first. When we say, happy are we, how good is our portion, how pleasant is our lot, how beautiful our heritage. Every single morning we thank God I, for... I always read in Hebrew, so I don't know where to find it. Ashreinu matov chalkeinu. Let me see if I can find it. Is that in the preliminary morning blessings? Yeah, yeah, it's in the preliminary. Yeah, it is. Let me see if I can find it. I meant to find it before. But I did not. Um, it is on page. Wait, wait, okay. I want to find it. Okay. <laughs> These are the precepts. No. No, no. Is a little bit later. Later. It's going to be on page 16. That's too much of a hand. The translation might be a little bit different in this. Therefore, it is incumbent upon us to thank, praise, and glorify you. Is that it? Yep. Hmm. Yeah, a little different translation. A little bit of a different translation, but we say fortunate are we or happy are we. How good is our portion? Yeah. In other words, we have an inheritance. Right before the Shema. Right before the Shema, exactly. Right before the Shema where we declare um, God's oneness. We thank God for the opportunity to be able to intellectually, emotionally, soulfully perceive it. And appreciate it. We thank God for this opportunity to actually feel it. Um, and, and this is a great simcha. This is a great joy. We all have this divine soul that can appreciate a greater depth of life, that can hear the music of the violinist and understand why one would dance to life. Because there's a deeper meaning, a deeper existence behind life. Our souls can perceive this, and we can become aware of this. If we just kind of shed away some layers and work on ourselves and kind of just let go, we can experience that soul. This is an inheritance. This isn't something we've worked for. We work to become conscious of it, but for the potential, it's not something we've worked for. I'm going to read, I'm going to read the last bold paragraph. Um, on 373, not where it says Hasidic top, right on top of that, on top of the thick bold line, on, on the bottom of 373. In other words, just as a person would rejoice gratefully if he were to inherit, inherit an immense fortune for which he didn't do any work, so too, and immeasurably more so, ought we to rejoice in the inheritance that we received from our ancestors, the truth of God's non-dual dual unity. That even the earth below, there is no other God besides him. To be able to perceive a deeper meaning and purpose in life. A deeper understanding to what life really is, to what our existence really is. To connect to our souls. To be able to connect to this. It's not something we worked for. None of us chose to be Jewish. To be born Jewish. We just were. Um, 
Now there's a whole question how that works with converts, but that's a whole good question. We'll we'll we'll, we'll have to save that one because unless there's time afterwards, remind me because it's a very good question. But when one gets an inheritance, you know, when you work for your money, you you get as much money as you worked for. But an inheritance that you get, you know, you kind of just walk backwards into it, and and you're thankful because it's it it you can't really measure what you're getting, you know, the work against what you're getting. Now the last line here, on, on the middle of three seventy four, very important, and. I, I think this is the whole purpose. This is the essence of Judaism right here. Definitely the essence of Tanya. This one line. And that awareness of the devotion to God's non-dual reality is his home in the lower realms, in the lower worlds. The purpose of existence. We have to take a step back. Why did God create the world? You know, we often ask why good things happen to bad people, why bad things happen to good people, why me, why him, why her. Why situations? We challenge what God does. But let's take a step back. Let's challenge why we exist in the first place. What did God want from existence? What he wanted from existence is actually recorded in the way beginning of the Torah. The very first creation that God created, six days created, God created, the seventh day he rested, each day there was a new creation. What was the first thing God created? Light. On day one, God said, let there be light, and light there was. Now, something interesting, there is nobody there to benefit from that light yet. There were no humans yet. There were no animals. There was no plant life. There was nothing to benefit from that light yet. Why is light the first creation? One of the answers is, when God said, let there be light, it wasn't just, the Torah is not just uh, anecdotally saying what happened. It's actually God's aspiration, his vision for existence. He creates the world and he says, let there be light. This is why I'm creating the world. So we can let there be light, so we can illuminate it. God creates a dark world, challenges and challenges us with the responsibility of illuminating it with him, with his light, the light of his Torah, the light of his mitzvahs, the light of him. And it starts with our own minds. It starts with our own awareness of him, realizing how present he really is in our lives. God dwelling in the lowest of worlds, Dwelling in our world, dwelling in our homes, dwelling in our hearts. Starts with him dwelling in our mind. How much do we think about how relevant he is? How present he is? This is the purpose of existence. In fact, I'm going to share the screen with you. This is also, you know, what Mashiach is all about. Um, Okay, I can't share the screen for some reason. Hold on. Okay. Hmm. Do you have it on your phones? No. No? Okay. I'm going to get it on my phone and I'll just have to read it. Unfortunately, I can't share the screen. Just give me one second. You sent it earlier, right? 
Didn't he send it? He did send it. I, I, let me go get it. Actually, then I might lose you. I'm not going anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, no, I okay. If you have the picture I sent in the WhatsApp, great. If not, I'm, I'm going to read it and you'll hear it now. A quote from Maimonides. There we go. <laughs> John, maybe you could share. Okay. Uh, um, a quote from Maimonides' Code of Jewish Law called the Mishnah Torah. It's a 14-volume compendium of Jewish law. It's like a digest, organizing Jewish law according to topic. And the last paragraph Maimonides says, the very last paragraph in the entire 14-volume book, He's discussing the laws of what's going to happen when Mashiach comes. And what he describes, if you look at the words carefully, you kind of have to read between the lines. And if you do, what Maimonides describes is exactly what we're describing in the Tanya now. An awareness of the reality of God, the reality of our existence, the purpose of our existence. That awareness is really what the era of Mashiach is all about. Mashiach is a physical human being that's going to lead the Jewish people, but it's also a time period, it's also an era in which God will reveal himself in this world. And it starts with our own minds. And Maimonides alludes to this. I'm going to read it. It's, if you have it with you, it's text one. At that time, in the Mashiach era, Maimonides says that there will be no famines and no wars, no envy and no competition. For the good will be very pervasive. All the delicacies will be as readily available as is dust. The world will only be engaged in knowing God, knowing in bold. Circle that word, knowing God. When Mashiach, the essence of Mashiach's coming is all about knowing God in this world because he's present. Knowing him is an indication that God is present. Then there will be very wise people who will understand the deep-sealed matters. They will then achieve knowledge of the Creator to as high a degree as humanly possible. As it says, quoting a verse from Isaiah 11.9, For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So when Mashiach comes, says Isaiah, the prophet, just as... <laughs> just as the sea covers the earth the world the, the knowledge of God will cover the world in other words if the entire world right now was pursuing a relationship with God in their minds and hearts Mashiach would be here because that's what the essence of Mashiach is all about if the entire world were learning Tanya, because that's really what Tanya is, a relationship with God, telling us how to access a relationship with God in our minds and hearts. And if the entire world were to be involved in this, that's really what the essence of Mashiach is. If we are involved in this, that's really what Mashiach is. So Mashiach is here at least on a personal level, which contributes to bringing Mashiach to a global level. Make sense? Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, actually, so I'm going to share another text with you. If you, if you um, look at text two, 
Maimonides again alludes to this, not in his last law of the entire compendium, but the first law of the entire compendium. This is text two. The very first paragraph of his 14-volume compendium. He says something similar. The foundation of foundations, he discusses the first mitzvah. He says the first mitzvah is not to believe in God, but to know God, to intellectually and emotionally internalize him, not just to have faith. The foundation of foundations and firmest pillar of all wisdom is to, in bold, know that there's a first being, God, that he caused all beings to be, and that all beings from heaven, earth, and from between them could only exist from the truth of his own being. So to know that God is truly independent, a truly independent existence, which there's a lot of discussion just on that one law. But the point is, the whole concept of Mashiach's coming, which is the culmination of God's vis- uh, uh, vision for humanity, starts with us in our own hearts and minds. Um, and ultimately I have a question. Behavior. Yeah, go for it. So the Mashiach coming and everybody will understand the purpose and be one with God and everything will be beautiful. But is it by default, if it comes, it'll just automatically be like that? Or do we have to call him? <laughs> good question. Very good question. We have to call him. So we then it's never going to happen because you've only got some people. That are no, gonna no. Happen. Okay, good question. Okay, uh, let me clarify. We have to call him, but we have to do our part. <laughs> and we have to let God do his. So, but it'll be easier, the transition, if he does come. But like, will he come if people don't do that? Then he'll never come. <laughs> So you you know what it says in the Talmud? Um, It says in the Talmud that we have to look at the world as an even scale of half good and half bad. And every single person, their one deed could be the one to tip the scale. So it'll be, it'll be, but when it comes, it'll be, everybody will be in a space that there'll be one and they'll be part of this beautiful, godly Exactly. Understanding. Exactly. It's it's our deeds. It's our thoughts. It's our feelings. Starts with it starts with us bringing him into our minds, into our hearts, and ultimately behaviorally bringing God into our lives, which is through His mitzvah. Through through whether it be you know we have six hundred and thirteen opportunities to to tip this scale, <laughs> whether so, so it be to fill in, in or Shabbat candles. What? Our job in life is to tip a scale and to make sure we're the person that's going to help make it way heavy on the one side. Exactly, exactly. You know, whenever we have a, a dilemma, a challenge, an emotional inner challenge, should I, should I be doing this? Should I not be doing it? Let's ask ourselves, which way is this going to tip the scale? It's a, it's a big responsibility. I had a teacher in yeshiva in school who used to say, I have good news and I have bad news, and they're both the same. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> God gives us so much power because he believes in us. And what we do has the ability to tip the scale. That mitzvah we do, that bit of Torah study we do, that prayer we do, that tzedakah we do, we have 613 opportunities to tip that scale, to make ourselves more aware of God, which tips the to scale be joyous. to be joyous, which tips the scale to make the world more aware of God. Yeah. The, the, the Rebbe used to speak, especially in the later years, the eighties, early nineties, 
would speak a lot about how our job these days is to rejoice that Mashiach's footsteps are almost here. Because we have to have that simcha, that joy is essentially what we're talking about here. That joy is an indication that I get it. That I emotionally, intellectually, and behaviorally, I just, I get it. I get that there's more than what my, uh, my animal soul eyes tell me. I get that there's a deeper truth. And that simcha is, is, uh, is an indication of that. In the, in the later years, the Rebbe spoke about this a great deal, how we need to just rejoice. Because that gets us ready. That gets the world ready. It gets us ready. There was a point in time, I don't know the exact year, in the 80s, you know, the, 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 there's a custom to wear that many have. They wear silk on Shabbos. It's not a halacha. It's not an obligation, but there's a tradition. It's a Kabbalistic tradition. And, and, and this is a tradition that the Rebbe would follow. The Rebbe used to wear a silk uh, coat every Shabbos. That was his Shabbos garment. And that was only 80s. in the 80s? So <laughs> it, no, no, this was always. But starting in the 80s, the Rebbe started wearing it every day. Hmm. As soon as the Rebbe started with um, going all gung-ho about Mashiach, we have to have simcha, we have to rejoice, we have to be ready to receive Mashiach. We have to be open to this. We have to be open to our relationship with God. The Rebbe also started wearing his silk uh, kapata, his silk coat, every single day. As a, as a sign that Mashiach is, you know, we have to be ready. The, the famous Chafetz Chaim, Rabbi Yisrael Meir Kagan, Chafetz Chaim lived about 100 years ago, maybe. Mm, yeah, about 100 years ago. He was one of the leading rabbis of the Litvish, of the Litvak, of the Lithuanian community, not the Hasidic community. And he would have a suitcase packed at his door, ready for when Mashiach is going to come. He was ready. He was living with this concept. He was just, he was ready. And, and, and the Rebbe loved that idea. The Rebbe would wear his silk coat and say, we're ready for Mashiach. And it starts with simcha. It starts with joy. Because that means we're open to it when we have simcha, when we have joy. So, did he only have one outfit? Um, I don't, I don't know. I'm sure, I, mean, I imagine <laughs> he had more than one. <laughs> you know what? A, 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 you know what? The, any rabbi's um, closet looks like. It's just black and white, and <laughs> like in the cartoons. You know. <laughs> yeah. Wait, I thought all the rabbis just had one suit, one shirt, one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Okay. This is the essence of faith, what we're discussing right now. When I internalize that there's a deeper purpose to reality and I rejoice and I celebrate it, that's faith. On the bottom of 374, it quotes from the Talmud, the prophet Chavakuk. One of the prophets, Chavakuk, did something incredible. And I absolutely love this part of Tanya because it, it really just, it's uplifting. He quotes the Talmud where Chavakuk said, there's a lot of mitzvahs out there. 613 is, is burdensome. It could feel like a burden. It's a lot. And if you think about it, 613 mitzvahs, to learn about each mitzvah, 
take the mitzvah Shabbat candles, how many details there are in just understanding the laws of when to light the candles, how to light the candles, who lights the candles, kosher, what happens with milk and meat, keeping them separate. Each mitzvah has myriads of laws. And the 613 mitzvahs, there's so much to know, there's so much to discuss, it can be overwhelming. So Chavakuk, the prophet, said, I have an idea. I'm going to narrow them all down to one mitzvah. And if you can access this one mitzvah, you have it all. You have the whole thing. What is that one mitzvah? To, to love your neighbor as yourself. So one, love your neighbor will be an expression of this one mitzvah. But what, what is this exact one mitzvah? The answer is on three, bottom of 374. Does anyone have a book? Uh, faith, faith in, in God. <laughs> faith. Faith in God. Chavakuk <laughs> said, if you have faith, you have all 613 mitzvahs. You have it all. You got it. If you, if you really, if, if we get it, if we really get it, for lack of better words, <laughs> that's, just the, that's just the best I can say. If we get it, we have all 613 mitzvahs because now it's not 613 burdens anymore. It's 613 ways to express my faith, to celebrate my faith, to deepen my relationship with God. 613 ways to tip the scale. It's not a burden anymore. It's a pleasure. It's not 613 mitzvahs. It's one mitzvah, faith. And that's expressed 613 different ways. I'll tell you a beautiful story. I may have told you this story in the past. Might have been a long time ago if I did, but I'm going to say it again. About six years ago. Six years ago, yeah. So I was living in Florida, North Miami Beach. I was working in a yeshiva for beginners. Yeshiva for students that did not have a formal Jewish education growing up and wanted to get back in touch with their Jewish roots. The students age averaged from 18 to 30. I was 21 at the time. And everybody had their story. Some of them had no support from friends and family and to the contrary, had friction from their family. You're going all religious on it. Some of them, everybody had their story, how they ended up there, what inspired them to end up there. And it was a very eye-opening experience for me, seeing all types of Jews from different backgrounds um, really challenge themselves, explore themselves, explore Judaism from that that lens. It It was an incredible experience. There was one person, he was... 26, I believe, at the time. Maybe 24 at the time. No, he was... He was, And he... he No, he was 24 at the time. He found out he was Jewish about six months prior. He didn't know he was Jewish. He was 24 years old. He tells... And this was his story. He grew up in Los Angeles. He actually lived around the corner from me when I was in yeshiva. He didn't know that. 
He's never seen a Jew in his life. His only exposure to Judaism was Israel on the news on CNN. That was his exposure to Judaism. He grew up um, without a father figure in his life. He was raised Christian. He was part of a Mexican gang. He's covered in tattoos. His vernacular is quite extensive. <laughs> if you get what I mean. His Spinglish is quite extent- extensive. That, that's how he speaks. Um, a he's lot been of four-letter ra- words. A lot of four-letter words. He's been around the block. He's been to juvie many times. He's experienced a lot of trauma. He's had a, a, a challenging life. At age 13, he says, Christianity is bogus. I don't get it. I don't like it. I'm leaving. I'm not a religious person. I just love God. He really was in love with God. It was really interesting. At age 18, he leaves the gang. He was managed to leave somehow. I don't know how. He left the gang. Um, and it's funny, he comes off really tough, but he's really a sweet person, really nice person. He leaves the gang. He, at 18 years old, so from 13, he leaves Christianity, 18, leaves the gang, moves to Vegas, gets a job in a pizza shop, starts to get his, his, his life in order. At age 24, maybe 23, his mom gets diagnosed with a a tumor, a brain tumor. And I think she's doing well now, thank God. But at the time, they didn't think she was going to make it. She was adopted. She never met her birth parents. So the adoption agency said, your time is coming to uh, a close end. So they thought it wasn't true. It's time we let you know who your birth parents are. They send her in the mail a packet She's living in Oregon at the time. They sent her a packet of her entire genealogy. And she sees her mother, a Jew from Chicago. Her grandparents, her grandfather was a rabbi. Her great-grandparents, Jewish, 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 all the way back. She was in shock. She didn't have much exposure to Judaism either. She calls up her son in Vegas, this guy that I'm telling us the story. And he says, Matthew... I don't know what this means, but I have some news for you. We're Jewish. He says, I don't know what you mean because I've never been to Israel and I don't have big curly side locks and I don't have a long – are you sure? (laughs) She says, I don't know. I don't really know what that means either. Let's find out. She Googles rabbi rabbi near me. Chabad of Oregon comes up. She meets with the rabbi. She says, I want to put my son on the phone. Here's my genealogy. We're Jewish. Explain what that means. And he starts explaining basics of Judaism. How even if you haven't been practicing and you didn't know you were Jewish, that doesn't define your Jewish identity because it's not defined by what you do. It's expressed by what you do. But it's just who you are. And as he was listening to this, this boy Matthew's in tears because he's always fell in love with God. He was so excited by God. He was appalled by other religions. He didn't know why. And there's something, he felt, he felt something. He wasn't sold yet, but he felt something. His mother tells him, how are we doing on time here? Okay. His mother tell. have you guys heard this story or no? No. Okay. Uh, I think you've told it before, but it's good hearing it again. 
Okay. His mother tells him, Matthew, I'll find you a rabbi in Vegas. She's living in Oregon. She Googles rabbi near me. She contacts uh, um, one of the Chabad rabbis in Vegas. That's who comes up. Who knew these rabbis were so good with uh, social media? In the meantime, Matthew totaled his car. He totaled his car and is looking for a new car. He's at the car lot in Vegas trying to haggle buying a new car. We all know what that's like. And at some point he says, you know what, I can't can't do this anymore. You know how it works. They run the numbers. It's not what they told you it was going to be. And then back and forth, he says, I got to go. I'm done. (laughs) I'm done for today. He says to the car salesman, by the way, I noticed you have an accent. Where are you from? He says, Israel. And it's really car salesman. He says, you're from Israel. He says, yeah. He says, so you're Jewish. He, this is what Matthew says. He says, yeah. He says, well, I just found that I was Jewish yesterday. <laughs> I don't know what that really means. I spoke to a rabbi. He says, oh, my gosh, come to my office. He comes to his office. He gives him a kippah. He gives him his rabbi's phone number. He says, talk to my rabbi. He'll talk with you. He says that day he actually walked out with a car as well. (laughs) He contacts the rabbi that this car salesman sent him to. The same rabbi his mother contacted from Google. His mother contacts a random rabbi. The car salesman hooks him up with the rabbi. It's the same rabbi. He took that as a sign from heaven. And he meets with the rabbi. And he begins to, in two weeks, now this is a guy who's been, he was in a Mexican gang. He dropped out of school at seventh or eighth grade. He taught himself how to read Hebrew, not well at all, but the letters and a little bit of pronunciation in about two, three weeks. His rabbi tells him, you don't, look, you need more than what I can give you. You have to go to yeshiva. He says, I'm sold. What's yeshiva? (laughs) This guy didn't know anything. He sends him to us in Florida. That's where we met. And it was the culture shock of his life. Because basic things that we might know just by osmosis, he had to challenge. Matthew was not sold on Judaism just because he was told he was Jewish. He had to really fight to really understand and make meaning of it. What is that scroll you guys are taking out? Why are you reading it? That's the Torah scroll. Why are you doing three steps back, three steps forward? What are you guys all doing? What are those boxes on your head? What is every little thing? Why are you lighting that candle? That Every ritual we do, which we're familiar with just by, by growing up with it, even if we've had limited exposure, he had zero exposure. And he made meaning of it, and we fought, we debated. And until he really understood it, it wasn't going to – it wasn't just, oh, that's cool, I buy it. <laughs> He was not going to just uh, accept it blindly. Finally, Matthew, after six months of yeshiva, goes on a birthright trip to Israel and falls in love with Israel, falls in love with not only Jewish culture, but his Jewish heritage, and decides he's making Aliyah. Took him another year and a half about to make Aliyah. Now he's married with a child, living in Israel, living a Jewish lifestyle, but this is an incredible thing. Here's the incredible thing. This is the, 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 the reason why I'm saying this story. You'll see how it fits into our chapter, to what the prophet Chavakuk says. Matthew is working in Tel Aviv for a security company. And 
He's wearing his layman clothing. His arm is covered in tattoos. But he has his kippah and he has his tzitzis. And he's at work. And one of his Israeli buddies say, Hey, are you religious? You're orthodox. He says, no. He says, so why are you wearing kippah? Why would you have to do that? You're not religious. He says, well, I keep kosher too. I put on tefillin every day. I celebrate Shabbat. He says, you do all these things and, and you're not religious. Why would you do that? He says, I'm not religious, but I love God. I'm in love with God. I have the pleasure of keeping kosher. The pleasure of putting on tefillin. I have the pleasure of wearing a kippah and tzitzis. I have the pleasure of studying Torah. I don't have to because I'm religious or I'm not religious. I have the pleasure to do this because I love God. This Israeli buddy was so inspired. He says to Matthew, get your pair of tefillin. I want to put it on. I want in. Matthew helps this Israeli fellow to put on tefillin. This is exactly what Chavakuk is saying. It's not about being religious. It's not about being orthodox. It's about a relationship with God. It's about being inspired. And now I want to do these observances. And now I get to do these observances. Now, this is a very inspired state to be in. And we're learning about it now. We might not feel like that tomorrow morning. But if we reflect on this a little bit, even if we don't feel it, at least we get it. I don't know if I feel it, but I get it. And I can feel it, and I will feel it sometimes. The prophet Chavakuk is saying it's not 613 burdens. It's one expression of, it's 613 expressions of faith, of a relationship. And this is true joy. This is what it's all about. Any thoughts, questions, comments, controversy? Mm-hmm. Agree, disagree? I don't know. I feel like I need some... some. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we're good. We're all in the same boat here. I'm yeah. assuming. Okay. The chapter concludes... By the way, whenever we're not feeling inspired, we have to read this chapter. With, truth is, I'm, I'm not telling you which chapter to read. When we're not feeling inspired, we have to find a chapter in Tanya that is our chapter, and we have to read it. We have to talk about it with friends. We have to make a lachayim. We have to sing and dance together, and we have to uh, forbring. We have to study, but we also have to forbring. We have to internalize our study. Lachayim, lachayim. Okay, so the chapter concludes... On 376, in the middle of the, uh, he says, so there's two types of joy we discussed. Appreciating how close God is to us and appreciating how when we recognize his closeness, that contributes toward making this world a home for him. And this is the joy of faith that inspires us to do all the mitzvahs. But there's another joy. 
another level of joy here to think about and to ponder. Besides for our closeness to God, and besides for being at peace that we're fulfilling our purpose in making this world a, God, a, a, a home for God, there's more than that. There's another component here that we need to, to consider to inspire ourselves. The pleasure that this is giving God when we make this world a home for him. Besides how it makes us feel, how does that make God feel in us fulfilling his vision for humanity? When, a, when a, uh, you know, it, it gives him nachas. When our children follow, the, follow in line with the values that we've raised them with, they get nachas. Right? How do you translate nachas? What's, what's the word? Um, pride or uh, nachas. I don't know. Nachas. Nachas. Okay, that's nachas it. Nachas is nachas. Nachas is nachas. As long as we all know what nachas means, we're good. Yeah. When our okay. children... What? Fulfilled. 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 Okay, that's a good way to put it. I like that. When our children follow the values that we've raised them with, and I don't mean just religious values necessarily, but even any type of value, there's a fulfilling, there's a certain sense of gratification. When we fulfill God's purpose of hum- for humanity, making this world a home for Him, by sensing his closeness and celebrating that with mitzvahs, we give him nachas, which is motivating for us because children want to give their parents nachas. Um, you do- know what was so nice about your story? So the gentleman who inspired the other, the Israeli guy to put his tefillin on mm-hmm. and through his joy, through his, in, his nach, I mean, through his joy and being close to God, he, um, he ultimately got the other guy to experience joy. And right. it's like, so the nachas is even more, because God will be more, even more proud that he's actually, through his inspiration and his motivation and energy, creating you know, a, a space for somebody else to actually benefit from it, energize right. them. The nachas was contagious. That's it was it. contagious. <laughs> It was contagious. Spread nachas, not COVID. Spread nachas. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right now, we're all, uh, the world is on edge because of the contagiousness. I don't know if that's a word, but it is now, of COVID. <laughs> and we have to make joy contagious. And a joy doesn't just mean, you know, things that make me happy. But, but like what we're discussing here, me, uh, fulfilling our purpose in which for what we were created brings us joy it's gratifying and it gives god joy and, and like you say sure it, it, it yeah and it's it, it's contagious it really is contagious we need a we need a joyous pandemic we need a joyous pandemic <laughs> we need to like 20 we need to <laughs> we need it we need the, the entire world has to be dancing on the tables with lachayim because mashiach is going to come because the world because god is present because we feel it in our hearts. So they must be dancing on the tables because they still have to stay grounded. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, there, there is a, so I was in, this was, uh, I think it was last summer or two summers ago. I was in Montreal in the shul there. And one of the rabbis was talking at the Kiddush. She was telling me something fascinating. 
I love this. His grandfather, or maybe great-grandfather, was a famous Hasidic personality. I forgot his name already. In Russia. And they were very wealthy. And they wanted to buy a new dining room table. What do you look for when you're buying a dining room table? It can hold your dad. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what often we look for is how it looks, how many people it holds, what quality it is, what the price is. His qualification, he had two criteria. Number one, how long is it? How many people can I seat? How many guests can I have? Number two, how thick is it? The guy at the store says, why does it matter how thick it is? <laughs> what do you need to thick? He says, it has to hold the dancing. Oh, my God. <laughs> these, were, these were real Hasidim that celebrated life, that celebrated their Judaism. And it was serious. There's going to be dancing. There's going to be celebration. And the tables need to hold us. And that was his criteria when buying a table, a dining room table. He should have got his extra two sets of plates and cups. And <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> for dancing. sure. Yeah. For sure, 100%. Real, real chassidim, they have to dance on the table. It's, it's not, a, it's not, it, it has to be, can't be scheduled. At this point, we will be table dancing. It's, it's a reaction to, to a real inner joy in fulfilling our purpose in this world. And as we're saying here, taking it a step further, giving God the pleasure. Let's read in the middle of 376. And this will bring you a redoubled joy. Namely, when you contemplate God's joy and the immense pleasure brought to him through this faith, which actually subdues the sitra akhra, this subdues klipa, this subdues negativity. This joy in fulfilling God's mission for humanity subdues negative energy, transforming that darkness to light. Taking the darkness of this world, transforming it to light. Or as he words it a little bit differently based on the Zohar, Taking a plural domain, a public domain, and transforming it into a private domain. So everything in Torah, again, has multiple layers to it. There's multiple layers to Judaism. And every halacha, every Jewish law, every verse in Torah... There is how we understand it on a literal level, and there's the spiritual meaning behind it. So in the laws of Shabbat, there are two things. When it comes to laws of carrying on Shabbat, you cannot carry in a public domain. You may carry in a private domain. And what the the Zohar says, that according to Kabbalah, I, I don't know if it's the Zohar, but according to Kabbalah, the public domain means the world as we perceive it on a natural level, from an animal soul perspective, independent from God, as if there's a plural duality to the world. And our job is to transform it into a private domain, a domain where it's solely ruled by God, because he is the reality of its existence. In simple English, illuminating the darkness of this world. So it doesn't seem like an independent existence, but we realize it's a—it's re- really a um, an expression of Him. It's all part of Him. 
And that's the closest of him. And that's bringing him into this world through simcha, through joy, through faith, through mitzvahs, through Torah study. And and, I want to ask something. Yeah, please. So the whole chapter, like, I don't know if I'm imagining it, but it was like, it's through the knowledge and gaining insight and being truly joyous through, through understanding yourself and becoming close to God. So like there's an expression, ignorance is bliss. So it has to be a true insight, a true closeness, a true everything. Then you get pure joy. It's like a real joy. And it's not just like a, um, it's a private joy. And yeah. Not just, yeah. You know, often joy is convention. Joy is conventionally understood as, you know, there's things that make me happy. Um, and there's, various levels of sophistication to that. For some people like myself, it's not that sophisticated. It's orange chicken and diet Coke. (laughs) Um, For some people, music makes them joyous. For some people, ideas make them joyous. An intellectual man. For some people, there's various levels of pleasure. But all these types of pleasure are getting things, possessions. So it's not really joy. Um, your joy is dependent on something. This type of joy is independent. It's not dependent on anything. It's internal. It's internal. It's a realization that there's a deeper purpose to our existence, a deep meaning to our existence, and we're blessed with this opportunity and the strength to actualize this. What well, you just said sounds like that perke avos about um, a love that's dependent and not dependent. Right. Right. When our joy same when our joy is dependent on a thing, if what makes me happy is my orange chicken, I'm only gonna be as happy as you know when when the buffet's closed, (laughs) I'm done. (laughs) When are we doing Chinese again? (laughs) Long time. (laughs) But (laughs) but um Zoom Chinese. Zoom Chinese, yeah. But this type of joy, our purpose never doesn't finish. And we have, and our potential doesn't finish because our potential grows with us. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. All right. Thank you. Stopping okay. the recording. Any okay. questions, thoughts?